We're going to get back into Luke again today. It's been a couple of weeks, so please turn with me over to Luke 23. And the passage we're going to look at is verses 26 to 43. I'm going to call this message, Three Crosses on a Hillside, which you will understand as soon as we get started, I think. Let's go ahead and and ask God's blessing. Lord, we ask the blessing of heaven, the blessing of our Father, upon this precious holy book, this supernatural book, Lord, a book that we believe was inspired, breathed out by you. Perfect in all its ways, inerrant, powerful. And so, Lord, we pray that it would come with your power to bear upon the hearts and souls of those precious sheep that you've gathered here today. We pray that we might be thrilled again with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, because that is the center of our life, Lord. And we cannot get by without it. So do your work today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 23, verse 26. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. This morning, I want to direct your eyes, the eyes of your heart, to a really wonderful but strange sight. It's the side of a hill that is probably in the shape of a skull, and on top of that hill are three crosses. We have the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in the middle, and then we have two crosses, one on the right and one on the left. And here we find the holy, spotless Lamb of God dying between two criminals, two thieves. Now, the question that comes immediately to my mind is, why did God do it that way? We know that the cross was God's predetermined purpose. So, why did God predetermine that Jesus would die between sinners, between criminals, between thieves. Why not just put him up on that cross all alone so that he dies as the perfect and unique sacrifice? I believe, and I don't have chapter and verse on this, this is my best guess, but I believe probably the reason God did that is because he wanted to show us something. One of those thieves that was crucified next to Jesus represents one part of mankind, and the other thief represents the other part of mankind. And in those two men, crucified on either side of Jesus, 
All people are there. You are represented by one or the other of those two thieves. And so the one thief was taken to paradise. The other thief perished in his sins. And that will be the eternal condition of every person that has ever lived on this earth. They will either be received into paradise to be with Christ forever, or they will depart from Christ for all eternity to perish in hell in their sins. And so this is, God was very wise in doing it this way, because he's showing the lot of all people. Now, we have a middle cross, stands for Jesus. We have the one on the right, the unrepentant thief. We have the cross on the left, the penitent thief. On Jesus' cross, we find him dying for sin. The cross to his right, this man dies in his sin. The cross on his left, this man died saved from his sin. Jesus dies in love. The unrepentant thief dies in despair. The penitent thief dies in faith. Jesus died a benefactor. The unrepentant thief dies a blasphemer. The penitent thief dies a believer. Jesus dies on the tree of redemption. The unrepentant thief dies on the tree of rejection. The penitent thief dies on the tree of reception. So there's a lot going on as you view the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But before we jump into these three crosses, we need to give a running start and get some context to where we're at. You'll recall two weeks ago that Jesus has been before the religious leaders and he's been on trial for his life. It was a travesty of justice. There was nothing legal about his, his, his crime. There was nothing legal about his, the suit that they brought against him. It was really a kangaroo court. They first of all convicted him of blasphemy because Jesus said that he was the Son of God. Well, of course, that's only blasphemy if it's not true. And it was true. So he had not committed blasphemy, but they knew that they couldn't get him executed for the crime of blasphemy because the Romans had no concern about that. So they brought other crimes as accusations against Pilate. They accused him of misleading the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself was a king in opposition to Caesar. Now that got Pilate's attention because these were crimes associated with um, the overall crime of sedition rebelling against, uh, turning people away from the government of Rome. Now, Pilate was in a real dilemma because Pilate believed that Jesus was innocent. He said that over and over throughout Luke 23, three times. He says he's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. But he was also a compromiser. He was a weak man. He, he was a vacillating man. He was the kind of guy who licks his finger and puts it up in the wind to see where the wind's blowing, and that's, oh, I make my decision that way. You know, he, he tried to be politically correct and get everybody on his side. And the Jews had this mob that formed against him, and they were rioting, and Pilate felt the pressure. He had to do something, and so finally he just caved and gave in and led Jesus away to be executed. Now, as Jesus is going to his execution, there is a procession that takes place. Look at Luke 23, verses 26 to 31. This describes the procession on the way to the cross. And the very first thing we see here is that there is a man named Simon of Cyrene that was drafted by the soldiers and commanded to place Jesus' cross on his back and carry it up the hill. Most likely, Jesus had become so exhausted, probably by the scourging, that he was unable to lift that cross and get it all the way to the top of that hill, and so they draft someone to finish the job for him. Now, do you find it a little interesting that the name of this guy is given? We're told what his name is, Simon. We're also told where he lived, of Cyrene. Now, why do the Bible authors go to that detail? You know, why is that important? They don't tell us what the centurion's name was. They don't tell us what the soldier's names were. But they do tell us his name, and they do tell us where he lived. Now, no doubt, Simon was a Jew living in Cyrene. Cyrene was on the northern coast of Africa, on the Mediterranean Sea. And he had, no doubt, come up for this festival, the Feast of Passover, to worship God. So as he's coming up to this feast, 
we're, we're not sure what, how much he even knew about this whole court case that had just gone on. Perhaps he had knew nothing about that, but he saw this great line of people going up towards this hill and he saw soldiers and he saw people being drugged along with crosses on their backs and he arrested his attention. He stopped long enough just to look to see what was happening. And all of a sudden he felt a strong arm on his shoulder saying, you, you there, carry that cross. So he's drafted into service. We don't know this for sure, but I speculate that he probably followed that procession. When he got to the cross, he stayed a while and he witnessed what took place. You see, I believe it's likely, we can't prove this, but it's likely that Simon was converted on that day. The reason I say that is because in Romans chapter 16, we have a Simon mentioned. Let me just show you this. This is what we call sanctified speculation. So, so we can't, we can't say this dogmatically, but this uh, is, is a likely scenario. Romans 16 verse 13 says, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Now you say, why is it important that he, they were to greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord? Well, did you know what the names of Simon's Two boys were. Mark 15, 21 tells us it was Alexander and Rufus. Why was the name of this man given in Luke's gospel and in the other gospels? My hunch is that the early church knew of him. They knew the name. And so it was relevant and it was important for his name to be mentioned. Why would the early church know his name? No doubt he had been converted. He had gone back to Africa where his family lived. He had shared Jesus Christ with his family. They had all become believers of the Messiah, followers of Yeshua, the Messiah. And later on in life, perhaps they had moved to Rome. Remember that Mark's gospel was written uh, to the Romans, probably from Rome. The first people that would have read the gospel of Mark would be the Romans. It was in that gospel of Mark that he says, uh, his his sons, he's a Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, in Romans 16, the recipients of that gospel of Mark greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and his mother and mine. So I'm just throwing that out there. We can't prove this, but wouldn't that be a wonderful scenario of God work providentially by, you know, he could have thought, why in the world did I get, of all these people in this crowd, I'm drafted to carry that cross. I'm just here to worship, Lord. Why are you doing this to me? And he ends up watching Jesus Christ die. He sees him utter those famous seven words from the cross. He sees his holy life and something clicks within him. And he says, this has got to be the Messiah. And he searches the scriptures and he says, yes, this is the one. He is our Messiah. He takes the news back home. He, his family come to faith with him and the whole family embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on then. The second thing on this procession in verses 27 to 31 is that Jesus speaks with a bunch of the daughters. He calls them the daughters of Jerusalem. He turns around. While all these daughters of Jerusalem are weeping and mourning, lamenting, and he has a message for them. And he says, stop weeping for me. Start weeping for yourself. He says the days are going to come when people will say, you are blessed, you're fortunate because you don't have any babies, you don't have any children. Now, that ordinarily would be totally out of the norm. Because to a Jewish mindset, you were cursed if you couldn't have children. It was a shame and a disgrace not to have children. But Jesus says the day's going to come when you're, people are going to say you're blessed if you don't have any. Why? Well, do you know what he's talking about here? The days are coming when... He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem within one generation in 70 AD. And little children were starving to death. And some parents would actually eat their children just so that they could survive because everybody within the city of Jerusalem was starving. The Romans laid siege so that no food could come in and nothing could get out. So after the food in that city had been eaten up, there was nothing left. And so they were starving them to death in order to destroy the people and the city. That's what Jesus is referring to here. They're going to say to the mountains, fall on us, to the hills, cover us. 
Just kill us now. Don't let us go through this horrible suffering until we finally die. And then he makes this interesting statement in 31 that I've always wondered about. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? You ever read that verse and scratch your head and think, what in the world is he talking about? (laughs) I, I believe I understand what he's talking about by that. The green tree is the living tree. The live tree, the flourishing tree, the tree that produces fruit. The dry tree is the dead tree, the lifeless, fruitless tree that does not flourish. And Jesus is saying, if they do what they're doing to me right now, I'm the living tree. I'm the flourishing one, the living one. I'm the fruitful one. If they do this to me, who never sinned against them and never committed any crimes, what are they going to do to Israel, which is the dead tree, who's rebelling against the nation of Israel? What are they going to do to them? They're going to destroy them with a heavy hand and an outstretched arm. So finally, the procession ends when they come, verse 32, Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull or Golgotha, sometimes it's called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals. This hill may have been called the skull because it kind of looked like a skull from a distance, or it may have been called the skull, the place of the skull, because so many people were executed on this hill that there were skulls. They usually would take the bodies off of the crosses and they would throw them over the, the hill into the brook Kidron. It was called Gehenna and they would just burn these, these bodies and all the garbage of the city. It was like the, the garbage dump. And that's actually the word for hell that Jesus uses whenever he talks about hell. It's Gehenna. The, the, the garbage dump where the fire never is never put out. But here we have the site of the crucifixion. And what I would like to do with you from or for our remaining time, is to examine these three different crosses on that one hillside. And what was going on at each cross? What was the condition of the person who was nailed to that cross? First of all, let's look at the cross of the calloused sinner. We find him described for us in verse 39. In fact, the only words that we have at all, that ever came out of this mouth, are the words we have in verse 39. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, first observation, this man was a criminal. Right? You see it there in verse 39? One of the criminals. If he was a criminal, that meant he had broken the law. The Roman law. Now, do you know what his crime was? Matthew 27, verse 38, said that both of these men that died on the right and the left side of Jesus were robbers. They were being executed for stealing. When I thought about that, I thought, you know, we've come a long way. You can't even get executed today if you're a mass murderer. And they were executed for stealing something, maybe a camel or a mule or a donkey or something. Uh, yeah, things were a lot different. But I, I expect that there were a lot, few, a, a lot fewer things being stolen in the first century than there are today. Wouldn't you think? He's a criminal. And he's a criminal who's being executed for his crime. And you know what? Every one of us can relate to this man. Now, you may not be the kind of criminal that he was, where you've gone out and stolen a car or you have uh, stolen from people's homes to get to get drugs or killed somebody or raped somebody. But folks, we're criminals in the sight of the high court of heaven. God has laws. And when we sin, we're breaking his laws. And in that respect, we're criminals against God and against his law. 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is lawlessness. Do you remember when Jesus was talking in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He ends up by saying, to those people, I will say, depart from me, I never knew you, workers of lawlessness. 
So the people that end up being cast into hell are lawless people, people who break God's law, criminals in God's sight. And the horrible truth is that every single person in the world fits that description. Who among us this morning could say, it's not me, I have never broken one of God's laws? Just take a few of them. Have you ever told a lie? The Bible says, thou shalt not bear any false witness. Well, if you, have you ever bared false witness? Have you ever spoken falsely to anybody? Of course you have. All of us have done that. We probably, we, we can't even count up the times we've done that. Have you ever stolen? I'm sure there are people here this morning, lots of different ways that we have stolen. Shoplifted. Perhaps you've broken into someone's home, stolen something so you could get your drug money because you were addicted. We steal even when we go to the grocery store and pop a grape in our mouth. Stealing is taking something that does not belong to you. I've done all, I've, I've taken things in the store and eaten them. Um, what about when you go to a fast food restaurant and they give you a cup for water and you end up going and getting soda with it? Or what about when you go online and you rip off someone else's music? That's stealing. There's all kinds of forms of stealing. What about when you take an hour and 15 minutes for your lunch break or 20 minutes for your other breaks? You're stealing from your employer. There's all kinds of ways that we are guilty. Every one of us is guilty of stealing, of lying. What about adultery? Some of us, no doubt, are guilty of that sin. And if you've ever lusted after someone who is not your husband or your wife, you're guilty of that sin in your heart. What about murder? Jesus said, if you hate your brother without a cause, you've committed murder in your heart. God looks down not just on the externals. He sees the heart and he sees the motivation behind every action that we commit. And if we have not been perfect in all of our ways, we're lawless in the sight of God. We're just like this man here. Criminals who deserve to be executed, who deserve death. Romans chapter 3 has that famous passage that just nails everybody. I'll just read a few verses from it. It's Romans 3 starting in 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher makes this statement. It's Ecclesiastes 7.20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Well, if that's the case, if there's not anybody who never sins, and if sin is lawlessness, then all of us have broken the law of God. How many laws does it take for you to be damned? How many laws do you have to break? One. Remember D.L. Moody? He asked his congregation, if a man is cast over the side of a cliff holding on to a chain of ten links, how many of those links have to break before he plunges to his death? One. Just one. So folks, we are in a bad, bad, bad situation. And it's not just us, it's every person on this planet. Do you believe that? Do you, do you folks really believe that everybody is a sinner? Everybody is under the wrath of God. Condemned under His holy law. According to the Bible, if we're going to be a Bible church, we have to accept that as fact. That is just the fact. And the Bible says in Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins shall surely die. Paul said in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. We're just like this criminal. The second thing I notice about him is that he was a blasphemer. He was a blasphemer. Because we're told here that he was mocking Jesus Christ. He was hurling abuse at him. He was doing just what everybody else was doing. Interestingly, look at uh, verse 35. It says, The people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
So what's happening here? This criminal, this thief, was listening to all the other people standing down at the foot of the cross, sneering at Jesus and mocking Jesus, and he starts to mimic them. He starts to imitate them. Remember, they're saying, save yourself if you're the Christ. What does he say? Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. He's just like a little monkey mimicking, you know, aping other people around him. And really what he's doing is he's committing blasphemy. The word blasphemy means to speak irreverently of God or sacred things. So it's to make fun of or to speak irreverently of God or sacred things. And wouldn't you agree with me that we live in a culture, we live in a day in which this happens all the time? Blasphemy happens all around us all the time. Turn on your television set. Go to a movie. Open up a magazine. Just go to work. Listen to your co-workers around you. And there's blasphemy. JC this, GD that. Speaking irreverently of their creator who made them and gave them life. You know that song? It's your breath in my lungs or something like that. I pour out my heart. But that The only reason we can give him even any praise is because he's giving us the breath in our lungs and we use that breath in our lungs to make fun of him, to demean him, to degrade him and to mock him. And it's getting worse and worse. There was a day here in America where clergy, preachers, pastors were at least given respect. That's no longer the case. There was a day when the Bible was looked up to and reverenced. That's no longer the case. Usually, preachers are mocked. Christ is mocked. The gospel is mocked. The church is mocked. And so, as you look at this criminal on the right side of Jesus, think about the world in which we live. And even think about your own life. Have you ever committed blasphemy? Have you ever used the name of Jesus or the name of God as a swear word? Have you ever spoken irreverently of God? I think all of us would probably have to say, yeah, there have been times in my life where I've done that. I identify with this man. Third thing I want you to notice about him. He was concerned only with this life. What does he say? Save yourself and us. He wasn't very original in what he said about Jesus. These other people, the soldiers... And the religious leaders were saying the same thing. The only part that was original about what he said was, and us. Nobody else said that part. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And I think in his mind, the and us was way more important than save yourself. What's he have on his mind? He wants to get down off that cross. He doesn't want to be feeling the pain in his hands and his feet anymore. Aren't you not the Christ? Well, then save us. Get us off of this thing. He's concerned only with this present life. His thoughts are not upon the judgment to come. Here's a man who's going to die in a few hours or at the most days, and he's going to meet his maker. And he has no thoughts of repenting of his sin, of crying out to God to have mercy on his soul. He's not concerned about the judgment to come. All he's concerned about is that this guy on the middle cross would somehow get them off of that cross and so they can go free. He's concerned about this life. And you know, I think a lot of us sometimes make the same mistake. We live in a world that's focused on the temporal, the here and the now, right? We're concerned about our next meal, our jobs, the next vacation we're going to take, the houses we live in, you know, our pets. We're concerned all about this present life, but how much of our thinking and our attention is riveted upon the life to come? Preparing to meet God. Preparing to enter into His presence. And then the fourth thing I noticed about this man was that he was calloused. He was unrepentant. How do I know that? Well, look at verse 40. The other thief answered him when he was mocking Jesus and he rebuked him and said, do you not even fear God? He didn't. He didn't fear God. Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, 
This guy's about to die. He's about to face God and he doesn't fear God. All he can do is mock God and scorn God and make fun of the Son of God. They're right by his side. There's no fear of God before his eyes. You know, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 wrote about the people, unconverted people in his own day and age. Let me just read this to you. Listen carefully. How, how Paul describes the people that were living in his day. This is Ephesians 4.17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. What does it mean for someone to be callous? Anybody ever here, here ever play the guitar and you practiced on it? You get those calluses on your fingers. They get real rough and hard. When you first start to play the guitar, it hurts to put your fingers down. But after you played two or three weeks, three hours a day, pretty soon you don't even feel it because you've got these little hard things on the end of your finger, calluses. Paul is saying that the Gentiles, and by that he's talking about unsaved, unregenerate people, they have calloused hearts. He's got these hard things over the, the ends of their heart. They're, they're, they're not sensitive. They're not feeling towards God. They have a barrier between them and God. God is at a distance, and they don't let him in. Their heart's calloused. And he, he says they're hardened, like clay that becomes hardened when the sun comes out and just tightens up. This man was unrepentant with a calloused heart. His conscience seems to be seared. The Bible talks about people who are past feeling. And you know, sin brings a certain kind of insanity into our life. Here's a guy ready to die, ready to meet his maker. And it's like all he can do is mock Jesus Christ. And you think, how insane can somebody be? He's going to go to hell, and he doesn't care. <laughs> but you know, remember the, the Jesus' the story of the prodigal son? That he takes his father's inheritance and goes to the far country. And the Bible says, But when he came to his senses, he thought to himself. He came to his senses. What does that mean? That he, he didn't. He wasn't in his right mind before then. He hadn't come to his senses when he's in the far country. And when we're living for the sin and when we're living for the flesh and when we're far from God, sin has produced a temporary insanity. We don't view life correctly, truthfully. We, we're riveted on the things that don't matter and we're neglecting everything that does. And that's what we have in this man on Jesus' right-hand side. He's unrepentant even at the moment of death. So there we've got the cross of the calloused sinner. Now let's move over to this other side. Let's look at the cross of the contrite sinner. Verses 40 to 42. In many respects, the man on this cross is very similar to the other, other thief. Very similar. I'm, think about this with me. They're both criminals. They've both been convicted of stealing. They're both going to be executed for their crime. They have both been insulting Christ. Now that doesn't come out in Luke's gospel, but it does in Matthew 27, 44. It says both of the robbers were hurling abuse at him. So both of them started out mocking Jesus. He's no different than the other one. He's no better than the other guy. They're two peas in a pod. They both start out on their crosses unconverted, headed for judgment. Very similar. But along the way, something happens to this other thief. He receives a revelation of Jesus Christ. Something snaps in his mind. The lights go on. Somewhere during those hours he's hanging on that cross, he realizes who's dying next to him. I'm not sure how this happened. 
I'm sure God had something to do with it. There's something supernatural taking place here. But he recognizes who the guy is right next to him. Now, how do we know that? Because he he realized the majesty of Christ. Now, think about it. Does Jesus look majestic? He's just been scourged. He looks like a bloody mess. His back is striped up. Probably looked like hamburger meat. He's got this crown of thorns, not a a regal golden crown on his head with long flowing robes. He's, he's probably naked. He's got this wooden crown, crown in his brow. He's got stripes of blood going all up and down his, his, his body. He does not look like a king. But I want you to notice the revelation that was given to this man. The first revelation was that this man was righteous because he says as much in verse 41. He says, we indeed are suffering justly for what we are receiving. We deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now that was against all of his sensory perception because everywhere else he looked, people were saying that he was guilty. The religious leaders were saying he's guilty. Pilate said, lead him away to execution. The soldiers were mocking him, saying that he was guilty. But... Contrary to all of that sensory evidence, this man said he's done nothing wrong. So there's a revelation of the righteousness of this man, in spite of the accusations being hurled against him. The second revelation was that he saw Jesus as a king, because he says, Lord, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Wait a minute. Does this guy look like a king? Not at all. How did he know he was a king? Well, of course, people down below were saying things like, are you not the Christ, the chosen one? And he must have read the inscription over the cross, this is the king of the Jews. But of course, nobody believed it except for him. Why did he believe when the other cross didn't believe? I submit to you it's because God himself shone his light into his heart, giving him the ability to see something that he never could see before. That's the only good explanation I can come up with for this. Now, notice, he believed he was a king over a spiritual kingdom. Even the rest of the Jews didn't believe that. They thought that when the Messiah came, he was going to be the king over this temporal, earthly kingdom. But he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Which can only mean that after you die and after I die, remember me. Because I know that you're a king and you rule in that kingdom, so remember me. Amazing. He was light years ahead of his other countrymen. Jesus' face was disfigured. The Bible in Isaiah 52 says he was hardly recognizable as a man, and yet he knew that he was a king. He saw something in him that nobody else could see. And let me just say to you this. Conversion must include a revelation of who Jesus is. People are not converted simply because they decide to do the ABCs, admit, believe, confess. Or because they're convinced that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life, and so they'll make a decision. Um, There's nothing against making decisions. We all have to make a decision, but the decision must be prompted by a revelation of who He is. You know, there's a lot of religious people today that are religious, very religious, but they've never had a revelation of who Jesus is. They say, oh, Jesus, he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. Oh, Jesus, he's an archangel. He's the first and greatest creation of God. Oh, Jesus, he's a great religious leader. He's a good man. He was a prophet of God. They've never had a revelation of the biblical Jesus. Jesus, being the eternal God, become flesh, dwelling among us and then laying down his life to redeem poor, guilty sinners. They've never seen the majesty of his person, that he's the creator. Colossians 1 says that he's created all things, principalities and powers and everything that has been created. Jesus was the creator of that. Just last night I was watching a a debate between the leaders of the Unification Church of the Moonies and uh, Walter Martin. If you'd like to listen to something fascinating, go on YouTube and find that thing. <laughs> Walter Martin just tears him to ribbons. But he he's telling them, 
Okay, you, you believe that Jesus, uh, that Sung Young Moon is the second, the Lord of the second advent, that he's the Messiah come back to earth, that he's the savior of the world. And he says, no, no, what you need to understand is that Sun Young Moon is going to bow before Jesus Christ one day. Sun Young Moon is a man. He's a degenerate man. He's a sinner that needs Jesus Christ. True. Very, very true. So salvation includes a revelation of the person, the majesty of who Jesus Christ is. What I also see here is that this thief repented. That comes out in verse 41. We indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Now remember, this other guy on the cross was his partner in crime, right? And he's turning against him. He's rebuking him. And he's saying, I'm not going to take your position anymore. We are suffering justly for what we deserve. How, how, how often do you hear anybody say anything like that who completely owns up to their guilt and admit it? They're not making excuses. They're not blaming somebody else. They're not shifting the blame. They're accepting full responsibility for their actions. That's what's happening in this thief. We are suffering justly. In other words, we deserve to die for what we've done. But he doesn't. So he's doing a 180. He's doing an about face. He's completely changing his mind. He's no longer thinking the way he did when he was nailed to that cross. He's thinking in a completely different direction now. That's what repentance is. To turn around and go a different direction. Turn your back on the old life of sin and follow Christ. Follow Him. Repentance is taking place. If you have somebody who won't own up to their sin, who justifies it, excuses it, blames other people for it, you have someone that cannot be saved. Proverbs 28, 13. Let me just read that to you. It makes it very clear. He who confesses and forsakes his sins will be given mercy. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Notice that. Confesses and forsakes. That's what repentance is. To confess something, the word confession in the Bible is homo legeo. It's made up of two words, homo and legeo. Homo means the same thing. Legeo means to speak. To confess means to speak the same thing as God. So God says, you did this and you're wrong. To confess your sins mean you own up to that and you say the same thing. God says, God, I was wrong. I did it. I was wrong. I deserve punishment. That's confession of sin. That's true repentance. That's what we find in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember the tax collector? He wouldn't even get close to that holy Pharisee. He was a far away off. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He's looking down. He's beating his breasts and he's crying out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He's not pleading that everybody else has been dumping on him. So, Lord, would you just show a little bit of slack? He's saying, I am the sinner, Lord. Have mercy upon my soul. Pictures of true repentance. We find that in this man. Not only do we find repentance, we find that he's trusting Christ. Look at verse 42. He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He knows he's going to die, and he knows he has no other hope after death than that Jesus can do something for him. That was his only trust. He knew he couldn't trust his law obedience, because there wasn't any. <laughs> he knew he couldn't trust his good deeds, because he didn't have any. What could he trust? Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, remember me. I'm looking to you. My trust is in you. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And these two things must be there for true conversion to take place. Repentance and faith. And faith means looking away from yourself and fastening all your hope and confidence in Jesus Christ. It's not putting 90% of your confidence in Him and 10% in yourself. It's putting 100% in Him and zero in yourself. That's living Bible saving faith. So 
If you're to be converted, you need a revelation of Christ. You need to repent of your sins. You need to trust Jesus, just like this man did, who fled to Jesus to find refuge. And the final thing I see here was that he confessed Christ. He confessed him. He confessed him to his other partner in crime. We indeed are suffering justly, for we are serving, receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He's confessing his guilt. He's confessing Christ's sinlessness. He's confessing Christ's lordship as king. You see, he's not just neutral to Jesus, and he's not in opposition to Jesus. He is now for Jesus. He's taken sides against his old life, and he is aligning himself fully with Jesus Christ at this point. And he's making an open verbal confession. Now, he can't tell a whole lot of people because not a whole lot of people probably are within earshot, but Jesus could hear him. And I expect the other thief could hear him say the things that he did. Isn't that wonderful to think that Jesus was, in in the ears of Jesus goes this confession, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. You are the king. You are the sinless one. I believe you can do something about this condition of mine after I pass on into the other life. He's making confession. And the Bible is clear that if we are to be saved, we have to make a confession. Right? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. One of the evidences of true faith and true repentance is that it will manifest itself in a confession. If you were so embarrassed about Jesus Christ that you won't tell anybody about it, you need to doubt whether you've been converted. Now, I know that some of us are very shy and very introverted, but that doesn't matter. When it comes to this, you can't let that stop you. You have got to fully align yourself with Jesus Christ. And that means being willing to say something to somebody about it. Making a confession. Now, here's the million-dollar question I want you to think about. Why was this man converted and this man wasn't? Both of them were equally near to Jesus. Both of them saw the example of Jesus. Both of them heard His words uttered from the cross. Both of them saw the inscription over the head of Jesus. They had equal privileges and they were equally sinful. One guy is no better than the other. Why was this man saved and this man lost? Well, there's only two answers you can give for that question. One is that there was something in him that brought him to salvation. The other answer is there's something in God that brought him to salvation. Right? And I guess you could try to toe the line and say, a lot of people say, well, both of them. I just want you to try to think logically about this. Why was this guy converted and why wasn't he? Why in church services the same sermon is being preached and one person melts under it and and goes to God and confesses his sins and is broken and the other man is just hardened and walks away unfeeling about it? Why is that? I want to suggest to you that the, the answer, the biblical answer to this is sovereign grace the sovereign grace of God. Do you remember he received a revelation? Well, this other thief didn't get that. He didn't get any revelation of who Jesus was. He did. Do you remember when Jesus was asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter was saying, well, some of them say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of those prophets. And he said, well, that's fine and dandy, but what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how does Jesus respond? Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father, who is in heaven, has revealed that to you. There was a special revelation A heavenly light shone into Peter's heart and helped him to see something that, uh, apart from that, he'd never see. Let me show this to you. Maybe from a different passage, it would be helpful. Uh, Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 4 says that those to whom the gospel is veiled, in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of those unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Okay, So unbelievers have been wrought upon by the enemy of our soul. Here he's called the God of this world, the devil, the prince of the power of the air. He's actively working to to veil the gospel, to blind people to the glory of Christ. But look at verse 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness, he is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do you see what has to happen for someone to come to Christ? God has to shine in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, if God has not shown in a person's heart, they can go to church, they can get baptized, they can take the Lord's Supper, they can go through all the motions, but they'll never be saved. They have to get what Peter did. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. They have to get what that thief got. They have to see Jesus is king. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is the Holy One. He's the Christ. And that doesn't come from flesh and blood. That comes from God Himself. Now, if we actually do believe that that one thief was saved because there was something in him that wasn't in the other thief, what we're left with is we have a religion of human merit in the final analysis. Because we believe that the salvation of man depends upon one person being maybe a little smarter than the other guy, or a little wiser than the other guy, or he has got a little softer heart than the other guy. Something's a little bit better or different about him that makes him receive the truth where this man doesn't. What you, that boils down to a religion of human merit. And the Bible describes the gospel as, as salvation without merit. That's what grace means. Undeserved favor. If I became a Christian because I was smarter than somebody else, my next door neighbor, then I, in some sense, there's a little bit in me that I can boast about. When I get up to heaven, I can look down at that man in hell and I can say, I'm up here and you're down there because I did something that you didn't do. But when you read the book of Revelation and you, and you hear what comes out of the mouths of the saints up there, what do they say? Are they bragging about how they made the right choice? <laughs> They're saying, worthy is the Lamb to receive blessing and honor and riches and glory and power, for thou hast redeemed us by thy blood. So in heaven there is no boasting. And there's to be no boasting here. Because in the final analysis, God must be glorified. God must be praised for the conversion of any person. God gives the revelation of his Son. God shines the light into the heart. Well, there we have that other cross, the cross of the contrite sinner. Now, let's finally look at the cross of the crucified Savior, Jesus, the middle one. And we're not going to take as long on this one, but we are going to think about things. Why is Jesus on that cross? We know why the criminals are there, because they're criminals. They're being executed for their crimes. Why is Jesus there? He didn't commit any crime. He never sinned in thought, word, or deed, or motive his entire life. But he's hanging on that cross. The thieves are hanging there against their will. Jesus is hanging there by his will. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he struggled with the horrors of drinking the cup? Well, he finally understood there is no other way. God is not going to change his mind. It is not possible for man to be redeemed any other way. So Jesus surrendered his will to the fathers, and now it is his will that takes him to that cross. Because he says in John chapter 10, no man takes my life away from me. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back again. Jesus is laying down his life. That's why later in this chapter of Luke, he'll say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Nobody took his life away. He gave up his life. He died when he wanted to die. 
He died when sins had been atoned for, and he committed his spirit to God. He's not some kind of a victim. He is dying there on his own volition. So why is Jesus on that cross? I believe the answer is in Luke chapter 23, verse 42. When he says to the thief, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus is on that cross because he's making a way for sinners to come to paradise and be with Christ for eternity. That's why he's dying. Now, the word paradise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's referred to as the third heaven. So evidently in Scripture there are three levels. You've got the first heaven, that's the atmosphere around us that the birds fly in. The second heaven, that's the starry heavens, outer space. And then the third heaven, that's the immediate dwelling place of God himself. Jesus is saying to the repentant, trusting, confessing thief, today you will be with me at the third heaven in paradise, in the immediate presence of God. You see, the whole purpose of the gospel is to effect reconciliation between God and sinners. We need reconciliation. We are at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. And sin is that thing that has come between us so that we can't get close to God. We're far from Him. Our sins have separated us from our God. But 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Now those seven words, you have God giving us the reason for the death of Christ. It was in order to bring us to God. Which means we, we weren't near to God before. We were at a far distance. We couldn't get close to Him. Our sin separated us. Jesus Christ died because God loves us. And because God wants fellowship with us. And He's reclaiming us. And this is the only way He could do it, is to remove the sin issue so that we can now approach God through the mediator, Jesus Christ. Now, as we conclude, I'm going to do a few things. Number one, I want to show you certain errors, religious errors that have been made that can be cleared up, I believe, from this passage of Scripture. First of all, the error of soul sleep. Do you know what soul sleep is? Soul sleep is the doctrine that when someone dies, their soul begins to sleep. Their body goes into the ground and is buried. Their soul goes to sleep and stays asleep until the final judgment. And then on the final judgment, the soul comes back awake and it is joined to its resurrected body and stands before God for judgment. But there is no consciousness in between death and the final resurrection. Okay? Well, Jesus says, well, the thief says, remember when you, when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus says, truly I say to you, today your soul will go to sleep for 2,000 years and then finally wake up on judgment day. <laughs> right? Today you will be with me in paradise. It doesn't sound like he's going to sleep. It sounds like he's going to be with Jesus in paradise. Second Corinthians 5 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 1.23 that to depart and be with Christ is far better. So when we die, we depart and we are with Christ. But you know the one that clinches it for me is Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 because in Revelation 6 there's a vision of these souls that had been beheaded and they're under the altar I'll just read this to you. It starts in verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Okay, so these souls are crying out to God. They're in communion with God. They're talking in communication with God, right? So they can't be asleep. They're conscious. 
but they're conscious during the intermediate state between their death and the final resurrection because their souls are there. Their bodies are not there. This is their soul. And there are other people who have not been judged yet. That judgment doesn't take place until the final judgment. So this happens between their death and the final judgment, yet they're in some kind of communication with God. That tells me they can't be asleep. Unless somehow I've horribly misunderstood this passage. But it it seems very... Very clear to me. So, the error of soul sleep. This passage also teaches the error of salvation through sacraments. Did this thief get baptized? No. Did he take the Lord's Supper? No. Was he saved? Yeah. (laughs) There are some high churches that put so much stress upon the sacraments. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that grace is dispensed through the sacraments. This thief was saved apart from any sacrament. He was saved by repenting of his sins and putting his trust in Jesus. It also teaches against the error of salvation through good deeds, because this thief had no good deeds to commend himself. He was a criminal, dying for his crimes. And it also debunks the error of purgatory. Today you will be with me not in purgatory to burn for a hundred years until you get your sins burned up and you're finally purified enough to get into heaven. If anybody needed to go to purgatory, it would be him. He was a wicked man. Right? The the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory is that if you're not quite good enough to make it to heaven, you go to purgatory where most of us have to go and we have to spend time almost like in hell being burned and roasted alive for who knows how long until our sins have been purified and then we get to go to heaven. That's the most diabolical doctrine I've ever heard because it blasphemes Jesus. It says his cross was not good enough to get a sinner into heaven. They, we, he has to pay for his own sin in purgatory and then he can make it to heaven. There is no purgatory found in Scripture. Now, some people will say, well, thank God we've got the story of this dying thief that made it into paradise. That teaches me that I don't really have to be concerned about my salvation until I'm on my deathbed. Because look... He wasn't saved till he was on his deathbed and he made it in. Right? I'm going to sow my wild oats. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do all the things I want to do. And then when I'm about to die, I'll just say a quick, simple prayer and I'll get into heaven. You see any problems with that position? (laughs) First of all, how do you know you're going to even be able to think clear enough to even confess your sin or to repent? How do you know you'll even be able to repent? How do you know your heart won't be so hard and callous that you'll have no desire to repent? It says Esau found no place for repentance even though he sought for it with tears. Not everybody's able to repent whenever they want to repent. The Bible says repentance is a gift of God's grace that comes to man. So we have all these crazy ideas. My advice to you is repent and put your trust in Jesus as early as you possibly can. You know what you're going to avoid? You're going to avoid a lot of heartache a lot of suffering, and a lot of pain. Because that's what sin brings into our lives. And the less you go around sinning, the more joy and the more satisfaction in life you can have. The Christian life is not some downer, you know, where we go around like like we just drank pickle juice all day, and it's horrible to be a Christian, but I have to do it. I've got to bear up. The Christian life is a life of joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. There's no better life than the Christian life. Now, let me just ask you as we close, which thief do you identify with? Because every person in the world is represented by this guy over here or this guy over here. If you identify with the unrepentant thief, you'll perish in your sin. If you identify with this thief over here, you'll be taken to paradise to be with Jesus. And the thing that makes the difference is have you repented? Do you guys see yourself as having committed sins? Do you see yourself as having broken God's laws? I would urge you to flee to Jesus Christ. Rather than mocking the things of God or spurning the things of God, close with Christ. Give him your life. And if you are one of those people represented by this thief, folks, you're headed for paradise. 
you are headed to be with Jesus in paradise. I mean, think about that word paradise. The Garden of Eden restored. God walking with his people in fellowship and communion. The Bible talks about a new heavens and a new earth. And so I, I believe there's going to be a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We will live. And I don't think it's going to be on some cloud stringing harps. I think it's going to be a real earth, a physical place where we will dwell. Earthy, but yet without sin, without the curse, we're headed for paradise. And that's no small matter. So repent and trust Jesus and follow him. And paradise is coming. Amen. Father, would you just seal the glorious truths we've learned to our hearts today. We pray for greater and greater revelation of Jesus Christ and his glory and the place to which he is bringing us. That, Lord, our lives would be laid down and we would not waste our lives pursuing things that don't matter, but we would spend our life pursuing that which truly does. In Jesus' name, amen.